How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I am a 19-year-old musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home, so maybe we can help one of you guys accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing dear friend Scott Wildman and his partner, Mr. Peter Munters. It was a great conversation. We talked about everything from their time in recording school all the way to their current job at Atlas Oceanic, recording animation and a lot of other cool stuff, and their own animated series project and idea, The Ballad of Uncle Stone Crab. You can find that episode and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, Pantheon Podcasts. Com. You can also find it and other episodes of Ready to Record at BlueGirlProductions.net or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, today's a really cool one. I'm interviewing dear friend and my old boss, Theo Hartman. Theo Hartman has an interesting life story. Growing up as the son of a priest, Theo had a lot of exposure to music very early on. Eventually, Theo found prog rock and really fell in love with the style. After some stints in prog bands and a little bit of recording experience, Theo then went on to study architecture in college and spent a number of years in the field. After a while, he fell into instrument and amp repair, where he eventually honed his love of circuit design. With this experience, Hartman Electronics was born. When it was still in business, Hartman had a small but loyal fan base and a fabulous line of pedals, several of which actually sit on my desk and get used frequently. Nowadays, Theo uses his architecture experience to design really cool systems in hi-fi and AV audio. Likewise, he has a really neat studio rig of his own and records a lot of really cool music. So. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Theo Hartman. Theo Hartman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. It's been far too long. So I think I want to start off. um, Obviously, we did a lot of work. uh, You did a lot of work in being in in the gear industry, being a, a pedal maker, but you're by, by trade you're an architect um so my question to you is how do you go from architecture to to being a boutique pedal guy whose whose pedals are still you know on on the scene locally and around kind of coveted and, and what what drove you to that as a youngster what what was your story growing up that made you interested in music and architecture um, well, I guess the, the short answer, uh, I'll elaborate a little bit, but the short answer is the way I went from architecture to music is because I originally went from music to architecture. So it was sort of mm. a, a round trip for me in a, in a way. Uh, I, you know, had piano lessons as a kid, um, and that certainly got me started in music as an you know, as a player, as an instrumentalist, and, you know, mm-hmm. reading music and having to participate in the making of music as opposed to simply being a listener. Um, my dad was an Episcopal priest, so every week I was guaranteed to hear music in church, whether I wanted to or not. I sure. got 
to singing in the choirs, I think at some point, though I don't remember exactly when. Um, at around, oh, junior high years, the late 70s, I first became aware of, you know, um, mu something other than AM radio and, and started, you know, hearing rock music and getting into, I, I, I confess to have, having had a kiss phase there for a while. And, um, I think I got intrigued by, uh, prog rock, but it was because we went to Disney World in Florida, my parents and I, when I was a kid, and I don't remember, it was like, I want to say 77 or 78, and there was a guy there, and you can still find videos about him on YouTube, interestingly enough, I think his name was Michael Iceberg, and I don't think that was his given name, but it was his, it was his chosen name, and he had a very large modular synthesizer that took up you know, like it would fill a living room. It was just, um, so it was sort of tangerine dream in scale. And he had a solo act at the magic kingdom and you would go and he would do things with synthesizers. Some of it was musical. Some of it was uh, sound effect based and some of it was just, um, you know, sort of blowing your mind with what, you could do with all of this sound making equipment. And I remember being pretty transfixed by it. Um, he, um, I don't know how long he kept doing that, but I remember very quickly going and hunting down the, um, the Moogs that were appearing in the Radio Shack stores around that time. And I, I wish I could remember the name of this model, but it was sort of a, uh, it was a simplified version of one of their, one or two oscillators since, and uh, it was well out of my reach as a price point, but I could play it in the stores. And then I found a book called Musical Synthesizers, and I believe the author's name was Devin Horn, and it was a technical manual on assembling musical synthesizers from the circuits up. Um, this covered everything from like how to build an oscillator to how to build a filter to how to build a rectifier to modulator, you name it. He had broken it all down into its component circuits and also talked about their musical functions. Like how do you make a waveform sound more like a violin or how do you make it sound more like a trumpet or a snare drum and all those sort of characteristics of sound that you can shape with those synthesis tools to approximate actual instruments. And that was sort of the first awareness I had of how um, how what we hear is um, is formed, I guess, whether it's from a synthesizer or from an actual, you know, an authentic source uh, like that it's seeking to copy, like the actual violin. Say. So that was a little bit out of my reach. Um, technically primarily because when you build a synthesizer you have to build a controller and building a keyboard is it's like still not something i i can do couldn't do it then either so i think i was limited to um breadboarding circuits with parts from radio shack and then using something like finger pressure on a couple of wires to increase or decrease the current or voltage that was going through a circuit in order to change its pitch so at best i was making like stupid sirens and um, 
you know, sort of poor man's theremin type of sounds. Right. Like there was nothing I could, I couldn't lock anything to a pitch or anything like that. But it, it gave me a, an entree into that. And it certainly sort of sparked my interest in synthesizer rock, which there was a lot of, there's still, you know, there's no shortage of that. But in the seventies, my Lord, you know, it's a target rich environment for that. So I got, I got right. into Rush and uh, Yes and stuff like that. I was, I was definitely getting into, I, I liked the hard rock stuff of that, like, you know, uh, Zeppelin and Hendrix and, um, you know, acid rock as it was called in those days. But I was more interested intellectually, I think, in the, in the prog stuff because of its use of synthesis and, and my interest in those. And, uh, as, uh, as must've been like early high school, I ended up taking a summer school class up in, uh, Worcester, Massachusetts at, um, Holy Cross that, um, it was circuit building. Interestingly enough, I took another class that summer in architecture, uh, but I don't remember anything coming from that, that, you know, in terms of, uh, an interest in architecture, but it certainly had some exposure to like office drawing methods and, you know, orthographic projection and the stuff you do to make, um, communicate, um, design intent through, through, through graphics. But, uh, the, the circuit building class was much more, you know, it was like, here's how you solder. Uh, here's how you test. Here's how you use a transistor, which was sort of a, a transistors are somewhat more complicated than other components in that they have three legs and current passes multiple directions and, and things right. like that. So um, it gave me a little bit more of a foundation in what those things are that was independent of the book I had been reading about how they make synthesizer circuits. And I think it allowed me a little bit to sort of extend the knowledge I had been pulling together um but then you know that was that was a three weeks one summer and that was probably about the the last of that i dug into at the time i got into bands in high school as doing a lot of music academically at that time i was studying theory and counterpoint and uh becoming more and more interested in being a music major and uh maybe not enough to go to a conservatory but definitely major in it in college uh, and was getting exposed to a lot of, you know, classical and jazz and, uh, playing, you know, in my own, um, band at the time, which would continue for a few years after high school and, um, did a lot of hacking. You know, I'd like, I'd fix gear when it broke, I'd modify gear. Um, it was easy to buy like a $20 shitty guitar amp at a pawn store and hate it, but then make a few tweaks to it and hate it less. And so I was doing stuff like that. And, uh, right. And it, it, um, I was doing lighting for the theater, uh, just kind of generally getting more into the gear end of things while I was doing the music because both interested me. And, um, then in, in college, I was definitely planning on majoring in music for the first couple years i studied and unfortunately or fortunately uh i had to repeat a lot of the same type of classes i'd studied and i had to do theory from uh the first, you know i did not get any advanced placement um and i don't even think it was an option to at the time so i found myself in my first two years of college taking classes i had taken in like 11th grade right. and i am such that if i'm bored i check out so I was, I was really fucking up in those classes, um, because I just couldn't, 
bring myself to go through it again. I wanted to do something that was more sort of at the edge of my knowledge and ability and, and, you know, break new ground or cut new tracks of my own, you know, learning process. And that was not, you know, there was a, there was a program I had to follow. And I think I was, um, I was rebel rebelling against that a little bit when I decided I was going to change majors. So I picked architecture almost out of the hat um basically because i had some assurance that i would be working with my hands it was somewhat tactile um i wouldn't just be writing papers uh for the rest of my college years i would also be drawing and so that was some consolation um that this would not entirely um bore me and as it turns out you know i knew nothing about architecture so i had to absorb new information which kept me engaged and it was a good thing for my grades for sure but it was also um i think the beginning of my sense of creativity in music um and starting to find parallels in you know this other field of design of of space of um space for use by people uh, right and i also in the back of my mind um rational at the time it was a rationalization it turns out to have been uh right uh as an assessment but like i thought well you know if i really want to design sound systems or be involved in you know the creation of music an understanding of architecture is going to be important because you only can control so much through the source and the listener you have to also be able to control the space you know you, there are acoustics to any space you perform in and those are determined by the architecture and they either help or don't depending on what's going you know what the sound is and, and what the space is and i thought well if i'm an architect i could at least have an informed um opinion about if not actual direct role in you know shaping spaces for for musical use and so that was kind of my um that was like the my back pocket rationale for for taking that um so i you know went on did architecture in school did a little bit of graduate study um after school and moved to um to California to, to get licensed because I, I didn't finish a master's program, which would have been required in a lot of states at that time. Um, but here you could do it through an apprenticeship program in addition to study. So um, I was, you know, I mentioned I was in that band in high school. It, it, I played for a couple of years in like the Philly area. Um, we sort of bounced around between uh, Newark, Delaware, Philadelphia, Lancaster, and New York City. It was sort of that Northeast corridor. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I I was in school for for that. Um, I dropped down of school for that. Spent about a year with that band, um, living in squalor. You know, we had a, a house in Ocean Beach, Maryland, that summer of '87, with like 14 people living in it. It was a three bedroom. Um, there was a guy who had gone AWOL from ROTC living on the couch on the porch. It was just, you know, um, heaven at that time. You know, right? <laughs> it was the best of times. So, and um, that so that summer uh was sort of the end of my tenure in that band which was called parish blue um it continued um past my departure um and uh went on to actually get a um 
record deal with a Dutch label called Van Records in the, it was like 91, I think. And then they, they did some stuff in Europe touring and made a CD and a single. And they actually recorded one of my songs, which was the first time I ever got a check from ASCAP for, I think it was like 25 cents or something. It was, um, nice. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> I made it now. And, uh, and then I was, uh, oddly enough, the drummer that I had sort of grown up with in that band from, we had been playing together in the jazz bands in high school and then in this band since ninth grade. Um, he also left Parish Blue in 87 and we ended up together through separate paths reconvening as the rhythm section for Sam Bisbee, who was a, a singer songwriter at Columbia at the time. And, um, that we, uh, Dave like and the drummer and I, and, and Sam were a trio for a couple years, 88 to 90 or so. And then I kind of bailed on that in 90 cause I was getting into the last years of my architecture major and you don't really do anything but architecture. Those, you know, you're just living under your desk in your studio. And so I didn't really have the, the bandwidth to do, um, performing and stuff. And, um, I, uh, I left New York, um, sort of backpacked around for a while and then landed in the Bay Area um, and started working on my architecture license and, you know, was pretty much just doing that, um, playing in bar bands um, with, uh, you know, friends and neighbors that were also musicians. Uh, there was some original stuff there, but... Uh, my frustration, I think, at that point was that I had gotten over the um, playing playing a bunch of songs, whether they were originals or, or covers, and then calling in a night. And I really wanted to get more involved in improvisational playing, um, though not necessarily jazz, though that was obviously available as an improvisational um, right. genre. And it was really hard still, I would say, generally very difficult to find rock musicians disposed to take those risks every day um to like to risk going out there and doing what you do and having it suck um but steadfastly refusing to ape something else or to recite something to really just put yourself um on the line to to improvise um collectively and i mean i i was am a, a deadhead and i think a lot of my interest in that kind of music playing approach came from that. But it was also, I was getting really turned on to a uh, guitar player um, in New York City in the early 2000s is named Wayne Krantz, who mm. um, kind of did a, he, he kind of jumped off the edge. Um, he had, he was a session guy and been uh, Berkeley School of Music trained and come up through um, the sort of jazz ranks uh, was um, uh, Steely Dan tour in mid nineties or two and had at some point just kind of said, I don't want to sound like anybody, but me, how do I do that? And sort of picked his own trip apart, um, to get to where he was just playing the music that was coming from inside and putting it out there. And, um, I was turned on to it by a fellow, uh, schoolmate a few years older than me and, and, uh, wonderful musician in New York named Michael Whalen, um, who mentioned Wayne's music to me and I checked it out and I was like, okay, here's a guy who's kind of playing in the rock idiom. I mean, it's hard to, hard to pin it down, but it was definitely not jazz or rock or anything else. It was him and his, his trio just cranking out this 
fire hose of improvised music that sounded like um, utterly alien in some ways, but it was authentically improvised and meticulously practiced, by which I mean they weren't practicing what they played. They were practicing playing together spontaneously with a degree of um, rigor that made their shows very exciting. You know, like their worst days were still pretty fucking awesome. Like if you could catch them in the 55 bar at Christopher Street, um, like it was sort of these two hours of your life you would never forget. Um, and I I was lucky enough to do that a couple of times. I would be in the East Coast for work or something and I'd make sure it was a Thursday night so I could get down there and, and catch a set. Um, and so that kind of, that reawakened something in me musically just reminded me that you know okay there's there's an approach here you can take if you're improvising is the thing you want um that isn't just like let's see what happens it was it was work and um in a lot of ways it was kind of the you know the the, the dead ethos was let's just see what happens but they had the they had the luxury of playing 3000 gigs over the space of 25 years so they kind of right. had regular practice they weren't taking a lot of time off from themselves or each other to do other things so there was a uh there was a momentum there this jazz act wayne Krantz, these are session guys like um uh, uh the drummers the bass players they're all doing other things they're all sidemen um keith carlock the drummer you know he's playing for staying in steely dan so like right. wayne, wayne wasn't his main gig per se but he was you know um, he was, he had his head in that enough to, um, to show up and, and, you know, do some damage when he did. And so it, I was just like, okay, here's somebody who's kind of built a scaffolding for, uh, you know, to, to jump off of for, for this kind of music. And so that was kind of exciting to me. And I, I did form a band in the early two thousands called earthquake weather with some friends and trying to get it going in that direction. And, uh, I met up with the same reluctance, you know, it was like, there was a, uh, my friend Dave is a bass player in that. He was totally into jamming because he, I guess he was also kind of into uh, jazz and, and the dead and stuff. But, you know, the, the drummer was much more like what, what goes here. And he needed, you know, he, he wanted, um, he wanted something that he could reproduce reliably at every gig. And so I kind of got frustrated too um, with the, with the band playing live to, to get that. And so, uh, that was around the time I started doing pedals and, you know, that started in 2006. Um, though I think I'd been tinkering with some stuff for a couple of years before that. Um, so my, my sort of playing in bands stopped around that time, mostly because of my limited availability. Uh, my kids were born in 2003 and 2005. So, you know, I was spending a lot of time, uh, still am, uh, being dad and, um, uh, I was apprenticing at night with a um, guitar tech here, Stephen White in Berkeley, um, mm -hmm. and uh, who's to this day quite possibly one of the most masterful craftsmen I think I've ever come across in terms of his diligence um, and, and his experience. Um, but he, you know, he'd he'd been making uh, guitars or repairing guitars since like 1978 or something like that. Crazy. He had worked for Ralph Novak, um, at the time huh. here at Subway Music. And Ralph's the guy who invented the fan fret system. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but it's, you know, instead of a parallel set of frets, they're sort of radially, um, expanding as they get down to the first fret on the neck. And the idea there is that the, um, the, 
the, both the string gauge and tensions and also the um, relative spacings of the frets getting wider um, toward the lower end of the scale um, and at the lower, sorry, the upper edge of the neck, in other words, the lower strings, the ones that are closer to you, uh, helped correct for some of the compensation problems that guitars intrinsically have. Right. Um, now, so fan frets, wild to look at, but very, very, very comfortable. You, you, for those who yes. haven't tried a fan fret, they're incredibly surprising. You, you try one. Just yeah, and and if if, it, a if it's weird, close your eyes. It just doesn't. It like you said, it, it's a lot easier to play than it is to look at. Right. <laughs> right. It's the it's the sight thing that makes it strange. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, St Stephen taught me. I would say almost everything I know about guitars, which is, you know, I've been playing guitar for like 25 years at that point, but it was just, uh, you know, I just discovered so many things that um, I had observed but not understood um, working with him. And obviously I was doing, you know, repair of guitar electronics again. So I think that kind of woke up the, um, that reawakened what I had learned that summer long ago in some ways. Um, and got me building circuits again. And that very quickly turned into guitar pedals and uh, guitar pedals very quickly turned into um, building more of those. Um, I stopped apprenticing at the guitar shop really just because I needed to focus more of my time and energy on the pedal business, um, which was, you know, <laughs> the early years of that were pretty uh, <laughs> funny as staying home and taking care of my kids and they would they were so young you know they would nap for like 45 minutes or 90 minutes or something like that a day mm -hmm. and that would be when i'd work you know i just like have that everything would happen in those narrow windows and then at night um i would also work and to my surprise um people liked them and uh it sort of grew quite organically for um first two or three years there um just you know um i was in contact with the customers uh daily you know i was spending a lot of time on the phone and email and uh, i was learning a lot about what people wanted that they weren't getting um and then i for better or for worse i tried you know scaling and i think around 2011 or so i started to really try to look to sell only through dealers so that i could spend more time on the the, f the making of them and less time on the, the front office part. And, uh, um, it, you know, I think when was it 2012 or something? Um, I finally managed to land a distribution agreement with guitar center, which, you know, going into that, I was, uh, I was celebrating thinking this, this is great, you know, and then only discover that guitar center is kind of the kiss of death for, <laughs> for, um, Right. The... For a small for a small business to sell through. Um uh for a lot of reasons. But the I think the biggest one was just that they um they had a 30 day no questions asked return policy, which a lot of people use as a sort of a lending library. And they would return dozens of pedals that had been returned to them by people who had given them no reason or false reasons for the return, send them back to me to fix only for me to find out that they weren't broken and still have to pay the return shipping charges to guitar center, um, to return those, you know, so it, it, they very quickly guitar center, um, sort of became a hole in the boat and, um, by, 2014 or so um 
the the company had certainly scaled its its sales and its production, but um, I had done so, you know, at, at great cost to my sort of uh, health, sanity, and sleep, and um, it was not actually sustainable at that point. In hindsight, I think, um, you know, I had some friends who are uh, quite successful venture capitalists or angel investors, I guess I should call them. Um, they do a lot of uh, first round stuff and um, chatting with them. Um, not in the not in the sense of like, will you will you invest in my company? Because I really wasn't interested in that. But more in like, what do I do with this? Um, they kept encouraging me, you know, keep it small, keep it um, keep it like a cottage industry business. Don't don't try to scale it. And I didn't listen to them. Um, I might have not wanted to hear that um, out of you know a sense of like, you know, I'm going to go take over the world and stuff. But I think it was also just like I I had a sort of um, by by the 2009 or 2010, I understood I could not physically keep building the pedals. Um, I mean, I had I had employees, um, uh, two or three really good builders who stuck with me through the years, um, but w- still couldn't crank out enough um, to keep up. And I didn't want to be one of those people that creates waiting lists for their products that go on for months and years. And there's a lot of that in the pedal world. Um, in the gear world in general in music where you want to buy something and you have to wait and they take your money and you wait and I saw how that gen- you know that engendered ill will and um, I didn't want any part of that so I was always on a you know um, build to order and, and keep up kind of basis but eventually uh, I had to sleep <laughs> so <laughs> so after about eight years my uh, my amygdala or whatever kicked in and said, you know, dude, stop. So I did, and um, and now I, you know, I actually the job I I have now, which is still designing sound systems, um, though as a more as a architect again, I'm doing the drawings for the systems that the contractors then install and build in buildings. Um, I tried to do both for a while, uh, and I just and I was still you know working shows is doing backlining and uh, monitors and stuff and that was just like adding an end to the candle to burn i i i realized that was sort of maybe you know in my um my errant youth i could have gotten away with that but I, you know i had to i had to focus on uh taking care of me so i could be here for you know my kids and um so i could be here <laughs> so um i uh I stopped the the pedal business in 2015, and um, kind of really missed parts of it. Um, still do, um, and other parts I I didn't. Um, you know, I actually ended up with some uh, some repetitive motion injuries. I guess you call them from working at a workbench. You know, for uh, a decade, and um, thankfully, I was able to rehabilitate some of that stuff um so that it's not any sort of lingering issue but um that's kind of a wake-up call you know just to like um you one of the things about being an entrepreneur is you have to be somewhat manic i mean it's it's a um it's an asset to be manic to, to be driven and and to let nothing stop you or dissuade you from your right goal but um there's a there's an underside to that which is that you have to make up for the loss of um the other things you push aside 
um, at some point there's a capitulation for that. And so, you know, I've often thought like, what, what would I do differently? And, you know, honestly, building pedals is pretty grueling if you're building them by hand and you can outsource that. You can make a design that a factory can build for you, be it here or in China. Um, I was certainly approached by some of them, uh, over the years and, and particularly after I, I stopped the, the pedals. Um, but in doing so, I would have sort of, I would have essentially undone the very thing that the brand was about, which was that I was building pedals. Uh, my builders were building pedals. We were pretty careful about how we built them and listened to them before we sent them out. And we tried to take care of the people that bought our pedals by making sure that they got what they wanted. And if they had a problem, then we took care of them. And I saw that all going out the window. Uh, if I started to uh, have my pedals built OEM in um, Shenzhen province, and it didn't feel like a real leg to stand on anymore. It may have been profitable, I don't know, but it didn't feel like what I set out to do. It felt like something else. And one thing I learned is I like building pedals more than I like building businesses. And so that just felt like an opportunity to do something that really wasn't necessarily of interest. I don't know, it sounds strange, but a um, uh, mutual friend of uh, ours, Len Ladoff, who was my roommate in college freshman year, mm -hmm. once uh, told me that life is the art of passing up opportunities. And I think in that moment, I remembered what Len said. Um, that sometimes what you say no to um, guides your destiny even more than what you say yes to. Um, but uh, that was, you know, I think that the internal reasons for, for stopping doing the pedals when I did um, also, you know, ran up against external ones, which was, you know, I've got two teenagers, they're on their way to college soon, knock on wood. Um, it may be that they're on their laptops in their bedroom in college. I don't know what's going to happen at this point with the pandemic. But um, I also was realizing I wanted to do music and that takes a lot of time. Um, you know, I spend somewhere between one and, I don't know, five or six hours a day doing music in some capacity um, now. And so um, that's in addition to being a parent and uh, uh, having a full-time job. And I, I think that that's the best use of that extra bandwidth in a way. Um, as much as I did enjoy building the gear, the tools for making the music, at some point I, I asked myself like, well, when are you going to make music uh, again? And, you know, I'd never stopped writing music. I've been songwriting since the mid eighties. And even after I stopped playing in bands, I was, making making music, I was writing songs and, and some sometimes I was even recording them in like demos. Um but I I kind of felt like uh, it was time to to get serious about that. And by serious I just I mean just uh to put it out there. Um it's going going back to Wayne Krantz who I was talking about a moment ago. He you know he he has this really great uh Patreon uh thing you should check out if you're interested. It's uh he kind of comes on and talks for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or a half hour um, daily about uh, his guitar playing and music and um, does Q&A. And, you know, he, he made an observation, which, I, which really kind of hit me, which is that, you know, um, why do you make music? And um, there are sort of two parts of that. And, and they're 
one was really hard come by and the other one was something that he he elucidated like so so why do you do this like i why do you write music what do you, what's the purpose of it is it to you know um sell a million records is it what and is it to go you know play for your friends is it to get gigs at the bars is it you know tour the world and the the ultimate answer for that um for me finally after i think trying all the other answers comes down to like if i don't uh, it, you know that energy gets misdirected and it comes out sideways and not always in constructive ways but it, it's it's got to be done and so the making of the music is sort of like a daily therapy it's this thing that i do that keeps everything else in my life somewhat in balance and there's no rhyme or reason to that that i, I mean I, I can't actually draw a picture of why that's true but i just have observed over you know um the the years that that seems to be true like when i shut off the music and i do other things it's the you know the car starts to get up on two wheels sideways it's 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 a balancing thing and it, it's a restorative act and it has an internal function it's a sort of hygiene that keeps um keeps me from you know going off the road i think um and the there is no other real reason for it but the observation Wayne Krantz made on one of his Patreons, which struck me, which is that, that there's another thing you do, which is you share it, you put it out there. If you aren't doing that, you're not really an artist. You might be like self-soothing with whatever your art is, but you're not really, if you're not sharing it with the world, it's not art. <laughs> it's, right. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in a way. Right. Um, so I thought about like, okay, well, you know, Fortunately, we you know we live in a time when anyone can share their art um, by virtue of uh, you can self-publish a book, you can publish your music online, it can get you can distribute your music. It's like you don't need a record deal anymore. And so, in my lifetime, that that has been an enormous barrier that's been removed from sharing the art I make, or if whatever you want to call it, the the sounds I make, and that that um, allows me to kind of complete that transactional aspect of creativity, um, so that I can move on to the next thing. Because you know, until a song is done, um, you're always tinkering with it, and one of the surest ways to make sure it's done is to put it out there. <laughs> right. So like, you can't take it back, um, and that is sort of like cutting the cord and letting you. Um, get on with whatever comes next in your life, whether it's another, you know, musical thing or just washing the dishes or, you know, what has this sort of um, cleansing act of letting it go. It has its own life independent of you. People can take it or leave it. You don't have any control over that, which is liberating enormously. And, um, and you're, and like, I like to think, um, this is a you know sort of self-serving belief, but I like to think that there's meaning in that sharing. That like if you if you take the time and the energy to create something and to share it with the world, that you may never know its value or its purpose or its importance. But that isn't necessarily for you to to know, and it's not even necessarily relevant. It's just that you've done it, and now the world has that. You can move on, and the cycle is complete. And there's some, I, and this is a superstitious belief, but I think that there's some function in the bigger picture in terms of uh, people, human culture, the fabric of our communities and society and how we relate to each other, to our, our history. 
um, to our bodies of literature and works that you know we accumulate those acts by all those people who have created before us and around us and it becomes um uh um <laughs> it's decoration for this this lifetime you know it's um art decorates life it's what we can derive uh, pleasure or, or meaning from if we if we want to um, and if it speaks to us that way, and so the the you know the role of artists is sort of to put that food on the table and then step away, right, and get on with fixing the next dish. So, um, having settled those why do this questions, um, it got really easy to just sort of spend time every day making the music again and um, some new songs and re reviving some old ones and sort of re recasting them. I think through the lens of now as opposed to when i had written them um and also with a, i think a much better um sense of how to get what i wanted um from the work of recording which um i i really credit some of the amazing musicians that i got to you know be sitting next to an amp all f all night you know listening to them play um when i was working backline or something like that and i I started to understand a lot of what went into the music that I loved hearing um, and the sort of under the hood, like how the sausage gets made part of it, not necessarily the aesthetic appreciation as, right. you know, the, as the listener. And um, that's allowed me to like, I think um, achieve some results in the studio that uh, please me more than I might've otherwise. Um, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you make a recording and adhere to any sort of improvisational uh, ethos? And, you know, one of the ways I've found doing that is um, sort of the, the power of the first take. Um, there's, there's a lot that happens in a first take that never happens again. And if your first take has problems technically, uh, if you royally fuck it up, um, you kind of miss the chance to capture the parts of it that are in some weird, small way, small p, perfect. Um, and so I kind of realized that like, you know, the, the, the magic was coming from those first hearing playing moments, um, whether it was my own um, playing with an instrument or even another uh, a musician's pass at something. And so I started to really kind of craft my, um, my approach to building the songs and the tracks around gathering those uh, first and sort of primal impulses that came through in first takes, and and letting that letting that stand, letting that be, uh, and so the the songs started to I started to hear them back, and they started to feel more natural, like they were breathing, and and the parts were responding to each other um, in a way that I associate with you know how musicians interact live. Um, and you know it's you're obviously trying to capture something in amber that's ephemeral when you're recording but um i found that there's there is something in those uh first passes that people take when they hear a track and they say okay let me just go through it you know and it's like a lot of times um those animal instincts that come out of somebody when they're hearing something for the first time and reacting to it when they don't know what's around the next corner because it's not their third 30th take um end up making it 
they they keep it alive you know they um that 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 tightrope effect um stays intact and uh so i i think i was i was able to find a way to that sort of excitement and that spontaneity of of live music and improvisation can um can find a home you know in, in recordings in the studio and that's been kind of fun right especially since there's no live music right now <laughs> well especially now yeah studio studio is that kind of thing where it's you know you, you and i don't think a lot of people understand how to do it right and i i appreciate the guys that do um but especially nowadays with the with the advent of modern recording technology everybody even the ones that still play live instruments and you know you've seen myspace i have a hammond and a couple of Rhodes instruments and we record real drums but you know there's there's that uh sense of let's do it till we get it close enough and we have the 95% and then the rest of the 5% will timeline make it perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, getting it perfect in a circuit is great. Be knowing that you're not going to have a short anywhere. That's, that's ideal. But in, in the sense of music, you really need to have some kind of interest that isn't, you know, not, uh, on the grid <laughs> right not on the grid not in a schematic yeah. not a cad drawing not you know yeah yeah not anything yeah, like true. that and yeah it, and it's you know very interesting like hartman electronic you you were you know a, a, a real glenn snotty for for those who don't know that name glenn snotty was the inventor of the of the fuzz um they dp uh I don't know how much it's disputed, but it's generally known to most people that uh, he invented the fuzz in around 1960. Um, and, you know, the the majority of the Hartman line was a lot of fuzz pedals, a lot of mm-hmm. clones, very beautiful clones of these really great vintage pedals. And yet you turn around and you look at the music that everybody made with pedals that you made and it's it's not at all uh you know a a a super time aligned on the grid thing it was very improvisational and i think i think that was the the sort of message of uh of gear like this is it inspires you to make uh music that's you know not yeah it, it, it you think outside of the box so to speak um yeah i mean it's especially true of fuzz um i you know i i i don't consider myself a a great guitar player i consider myself a a, on some days adequate guitar player and um i spent a lot of time obviously because i was building them playing through my own pedals and you know letting them take me on journeys like that but uh i was I was fortunate to be able to see or hear much better players than myself take them for a spin and through that understand where that potentially you're talking about lay. And, you know, there was this, um, uh, Steve, uh, Kimok who has been using the germanium fuzz for 
uh, since 2011. Um, I think I've only heard him play it in person a few times because he's he changes what he uses from night to night. He but, still have the two knob version, or did he have the three knob? Because I remember the early ones were still had just two knobs, the volume and the fuzz. I'd have to go look at a picture to check. I think it was a three by that point. I actually, I originally gave that pedal to Rudson Shirtliff, Ramrod's ah, kid. Um, right. Because he was making guitars. Um, he was making hippie sandwich guitars like the Doug Irwins um, up in Petaluma um, right up until his, his death. And um, yeah. so he and I got, we kind of got like, uh, we became friends and we also became gear buddies, you know, and so we're um, always uh, shooting the shit about gear. And I gave him that pedal, not realizing that he was uh, essentially Kimox, you know, guitar tech for a lot of the West Coast shows. And so and I ended up getting this message out of the blue one New Year's Day um, from I figured it out. Eventually, it was from Kimok, who I don't think I'd ever encountered before saying he liked it and i guess rudson had had done a lateral pass so i started to um uh, there was that was 2011 in the like the winter and um steve did a couple of shows out here that that february and march and i remember hearing him play it and he did this thing with it where he was um i mean he was using the mutron too so it was kind of doing the auto wah effect but the thing he was doing with the fuzz that i had observed this playing the fuzz but i had never thought of it as like a um a musical uh tack to take which is he was hitting a lot of whole step intervals he'd play two notes on the guitar a whole step apart which creates this you know dissonance obviously right um it's not a necessarily unpleasant dissonance because it like compared to say a half step but it's still you know it rubs and with with distortion fuzz pedal it sets up this overtone series which utterly clobbers the the sound and it turns it into mush almost if you do it too much it does but if you if you if you sort of tiptoe your way into that um that dissonance you can get the sort of the fuzz to to behave in a way where it's like providing clarity or providing um blurriness um to the exact degree that you want it to and so he would he would be playing and and using the fuzz as this sort of like um, smudge tool <laughs> um on the lines he was playing where you would have a distinct you would have a distinct uh, sort of picture of the, mel the melodic flow of the line and then it would disappear into this roar you know that was the um the dissonance of the overtones taking over the fuzz and masking the fundamentals entirely and depending on what those dissonances were, because they weren't all they weren't all whole steps. He would sometimes pick other intervals, and a right. fuzz cranked a fuzz cranked can't really deal with anything other than a unison, an octave, or a fifth. Maybe anything else starts to get too overtone heavy. Um, the beats start to the beat frequencies start to overwhelm the fundamentals, and it becomes too diffuse to be tonal to to really be called tonal. And and I was suddenly realizing that like there's this whole other axis of movement possible with the fuzz um that you can control you know tactically because it that sort of uh, the sensitivity fuzz has you know versus some distortions which are a little bit more one trick ponies they have their sound and not necessarily as reactive um that was an eye-opener and i realized it was one of the things i loved so much about like the the sounds of fuzz from the 60s you know from um you know, uh, Westerfield or Hendrix and all this, 
this sort of grindy stuff that also had this crazy like ability to disappear into noise and come back again that was just really kind of organic and gentle and unforced and it was coming right from the player's fingers and that was when i realized it wasn't just coming from how hard they were hitting the strings or or anything it was coming from their choice of musical interval and that sort of that opened a door for me realizing that you know you could exploit those dissonances and 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 magnify them into these really grandiose effects um using fuzz uh if you if you kind of understood how it you know it had that vulnerability where it couldn't handle a lot of overtones mm-hmm. uh, right yeah there there's a lot of there's so much there's so many ways to use fuzz i mean i i don't really have to tell you you made 7 um it you know at 8 if you want to include the uh the uh, treble booster, which I actually have sitting on my desk right here. Um, there are so many ways to use these pedals, um, so many ways to use fuzz, so many ways to, to it's it's impressive, you know. I and I've been using these for God nine years now, twenty twenty one nine nine ten years, and uh, I don't think I've found every way to use these certainly if if i haven't i i don't know how many others have um have you tried the uh the backwards wah into the fuzz yet backwards wah into the fuzz so i i think this is something i learned and forgot and then had to be reminded of again but um one of my customers sent me um I swear, I don't remember what this guy's name. I wish I could, but I, he sent me a cassette tape in the mail. And this was in like 2010, right? Wow, so, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, he didn't have internet. <laughs> he lived like in the, he, you know, like in the desert somewhere down Southwest. And I'm picturing like, you know, tumbleweeds in a trailer with a well. And he had gotten the silicon fuzz and he had I and this thing was record I could tell because I could hear the the buttons click. This was recorded on one of those old mono Radio Shack voice recorder things that's like the size of it's like six inches wide and twelve inches deep and four inches high and it's got all the buttons across the front and the lid pops up for the cassette and it's like the thing you put on your desk for dictation. Mm-hmm. And he had recorded himself with a strat into a crybaby into the silicon fuzz and then into the amp, but the crybaby's wired backwards so he's plugged into the output jack and the input jack of the crybaby's plugged into the input jack of the fuzz and then onto the amp and this creates the whale sounds from echoes by pink floyd um it self-oscillates the the wah and then it goes into the fuzz and kind of gets rounded off and you know warmed up a little bit and you can kind of create you can kind of contain it to be like a, a muffled vowel sound or or a more open like a squawky bird sound um and he he just did a, a tape of this <laughs> and said to me um and i you know like and it was at that time i remember hearing those sounds and remembering like oh, i vaguely remember somebody talking about this trick you can do with the, and it had to be a crybaby wah i think because that, that particular wah was was able to self-oscillate when it was run in reverse um is basically you're you're hooking up the the 
guitar's circuit to the output of the crybaby and that changes the the whole rcl circuit in there and the guitar becomes part of the wah in a way but um but yeah that was a that would struck me as like a fairly novel use and again like you know probably wasn't something he invented because i think it was uh i think it was a, a david gilmore invention probably if not somebody before him but um, yeah, there's no, I mean, like that's, that's the thing about like doing things wrong and breaking rules is a lot of times you find these, these, uh, gems, these little detours that give you sounds. Like I was just playing, I have this, uh, I don't really use whammy bars much, but I have this, uh, sort of a bastard version of a strat by Schechter that's got a Floyd Rose on it and humbuckers. So, you know, it's like. Not, not sorry, not a strat telly. It's not even a telly. It's just a what? It's a. It's T shaped. It's, like, it's yeah. It's T shaped, and it sounds like you know it's a, a high gain stunt guitar. Um, I but I, the, I remember that thing so well. Nam. Oh yeah, we had it at Nam. Yeah. Every, yeah. Well, I couldn't even play my guitar. Everybody was playing my guitar. So when times came for me to demo, it was either that thing or your black telly because those were the two that seemed to be like the least played by everyone else so i yeah. ended up just playing the, the t-types and it was funny after a while uh sal salvador rea one of the one yeah of, one of uh theo's builders great guy um uh sal ended up having to take that uh guitar and and just you know uh check it. it out of nam because the floyd kept going out because somehow hall e just was not properly ventilated enough and the floyd was not happy with us right and if uh, the floyd takes like a month to tune anyway even on a good day the um right. so they have that so the way that you know the the whammy bar on a floyd has this little uh ring that screws down over the threads yep. it it lives on the bar itself and uh so like a fender the threads are on the bar and it threads into the body but on a floyd the threads are on the on the body and the the socket threads onto them that tightens so i hadn't tightened that all the way i had tightened it enough but i had left a slight amount of slack in the uh, tightness of the threads that caused the and and the position of the handle was such that it was sort of cantilevered out over the knobs that whenever i hit um a low string with a lot of you know vibrational energy that got transferred into the body of the guitar it would cause the floyd arm to vibrate like a doorstop like a brrr kind of thing and come to a rest right um which actually sounded really fucking cool on single notes on the low e string <laughs> it it just added this kind of like stutter decay um to it. And for a while, I couldn't figure out where the vibration was coming from, and I was freaking out that I was going to have to take the guitar in for service because there was some sort of mechanical, you know, connection uh, in either the spring assembly or the bridge or something or or wherever um, that was going to have to get, you know, checked out. But it was in fact just a failure to tighten the arm. So now I've been experimenting with ways to get that tension just right on the on the threads so that it stays that way and do you know record sounds with it um it reminds me of this guy i don't remember who this was but uh i i first heard this when i was still working at that guitar shop 
in uh, Berkeley with Stephen White. He did a uh, an entire guitar solo using the sound of his amp being turned off while he was playing through it. So, like when you turn off a like a Fender tube amp, it fades, and as right. it fades, it starts to crackle. And then it you know, eventually goes to silence. But there's this sort of fade, crackly, decay thing that can last for several seconds. So he did multiple passes through his whole guitar solo, playing and capturing each phrase in that decay phase of the of the amp power down. Nice. Um, it sounds terrible. I mean, I, I'm not saying it was. It was. I'm not saying it was a. It was a like a. It was a successful test of the idea. I'm not saying it sounded great, but. Um, I think you know. the, I think the better way to try that would be to have a variac at like five watts, or, or five volts rather, just really really low, so it's you know that amount of power. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I would think right. Yeah, yeah, provided that that doesn't somehow strain some other component to be run at that you know um, at that wrong power level. Yeah, right. I would agree. Yeah. Well. Um, I guess absent of Variac, he just did like very short, you know, punches and worked his way through the comp, the whole thing. <laughs> I do not want to try that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's for, for me anyway, it's hard enough to get a quote unquote natural sound out of a guitar. Um, that, uh, you know, that to me is still like the hardest thing is just to record a guitar and have it sound naturally in the context of whatever the music is. Um, I think I understand why it's so hard, but it doesn't always make it easier. You know? I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and frankly, I, I mean, that, that was the whole point of building the fuzz pedal was for a, a, a super low wattage or, or broke or breaking up speaker that was, you know, slightly damaged. Uh, yeah. I'm, Cause I'm you could starve the, the pedal to make it do that without, yeah, without having to flip the power. Of yeah. you, you could, you could build a fuzz pedal, uh, that could do that for you pretty easy. Uh, just have to yeah. figure out the right voltages. Speaking of fuzz pedals, since we were on the topic of seven fuzz, what, what was your fascination with the fuzz pedal? Oh, I mean, it, so th this is going to very quickly get into, uh, what is fuzz, but, let's let's for now say that let's let's define a fuzz pedal as a self-biasing transistor circuit by which i mean that um you know a, a transistor is an amplifier in a in a fuzz or distortion pedal and so the guitar signal comes in it goes through the transistor and it gets louder right and in most cases it gets louder enough that the tops of the peaks of the waveform get chopped off into square waves and that's the distortion you hear now, all you need to do that is a, is a simple transistor or an operational amplifier, which was the sort of uh, inherent the successor to the transistor. Mm -hmm. The thing that those amplifiers run, they, they require power, obviously, um, and they wait for the signal to come in at some zero voltage. And I put zero in quotes, but like a silent guitar signal is is no waveform coming out of the guitar. And when the waveform starts coming out, it's going up and down around some zero, some axis. And that is what a transistor uh, considers its bias point. Now, 
most transistors' bias points are fixed by the circuits they inhabit. There's something on the transistor that's giving it a voltage to regulate its bias point and lock it into a certain point around which the guitar signal will uh, oscillate, will vibrate. The fuzz phase circuit has no such bias circuit inside. Right. Um, it, it's literally parasitically taking stray current from the output of the guitar, and that is in turn feeding back into the transistor as, as its sort of uh, bias cue. If you if you would, and then there's some controls on a fuzz pedal that further alter that because there there's no um, <laughs> how to describe a fuzz pedal is like a you know a, a a bathtub with no walls. It's like there's no there's nothing to contain that um, yeah it within a, a defined boundary by the designer. So the only thing that determines those boundaries of of distortion and cleanliness the the sort of bias point around which the sound um, is either clean or dirty, depending on how much of its peaks are getting lopped off, is that it's the transistor you pick. And if the transistors, uh, by by chance, essentially, in a it, around a happy place, and it has adequate you know gain and bandwidth and low enough noise, then it, it makes for a good transistor and a fuzz pedal. Um, outside of a fuzz pedal in like a distortion circuit with fixed bias points on the transistors, you can use so many other kinds of transistors um because you can you can eliminate their inconsistencies in the circuit design and in fuzz you just can't um you're so you know you end up not being able to use all the transistors um that you might have but the ones that you do have have these really individual characteristics of that particular transistor and then you when you play them you kind of start to learn them they're they're a, sort of they've got a bit of a mind of their own and some of them um are very sort of creamy and smooth, and some of them are sort of harsh and bark, and uh, some of them are kind of a blend of the two. And then that that to me just seemed more fun musically to play into, um, and it was certainly a lot more fun to design. Um, it was less cookie cutter. Uh, now, I, like later on, I did the um, uh, the crystal valve pedals, which were based on you know the the solo sound uh, super no the color sound super bender and the um the solo sound um da it was a they're steve hackett pedals i remember that, that um it's got an english name um sheffield i think it was um but these are three three transistor fuzz quote unquote pedals um that were sort of second generation fuzz. So they came after the like Hendrix style, Roger Mayer fuzzes. They had fixed bias circuit designs in them, meaning they were stable. And if you had two of them, they would sound alike, which if you're selling pedals and people want the same thing that their friend has, that's a good thing and not a bad thing. Um, my interest in those was more about how they had been used in music I loved, which was going back to like, uh, Steve Hackett era Genesis and again Prague stuff, but because um, they had this kind of super compressed thing that was cool. But um, but yeah, the uh, the the attraction to fuzz, the, the the stuff that was like really fun to do, like the treble booster you have in the, the uh, silicon and the germanium fuzz faces, was just that like lack of internal bias meant it was just you and the um, 
you and the transistor, uh, you meaning your guitar and, and what you were choosing to do with it, and this interactivity that was unconstrained by the designer um, right. of the circuit and more a function of their selection of that that transistor and then your your choice of how to use it. Uh, that seemed, I don't know, it just seemed like less, it seemed like I would be intervening less in that design and that person's experience using that thing than if I made decisions for them uh, about how this transistor should be biased and all that. It just seemed like the circuit lent itself to that kind of thing. And the downside was that no two sounded alike. So that's sort of the, <laughs> um, that was the, uh, or the upside, I guess. Um, but that was what, that, that's what got me into it. And, um, then, you know, as, as my, uh, my interests, um, progressed, I started getting into, um, the, I think the orange squeezer was one of the first circuits that I looked at after doing the first fuzz. And, you know, that interestingly enough, that's a compressor, um, but it right. has a similar sort of, uh, ranginess to it as a non-biased transistor fuzz circuit in that it's uh the way it controls its own compression envelope is is incredibly crude and it's not um there are things that, how do i describe this a compressor has a few different parameters that most people are used to adjusting one is the ratio meaning how much uh, does it compress the signal versus the raw signal coming in? So two to one right. means it reduces it to two uh, to half or four to one to four um, over some threshold. In other words, the compressor may not act at all until you've crossed over some threshold, at which point it starts to behave. And if you can set that threshold, you can make the compressor just give you a little haircut off the top or really squash the whole thing and sound like, you know, Beavis and Butthead. So... The the thing about the orange squeezer was you couldn't change those two things independently. Right. When you changed the ratio, you also changed the uh, threshold, and so you ended up with this um, this behavior which was completely specific to that design, and it was not like uh, it didn't have any other behavior uh, <laughs> but that one. Right. And it, I guess if you didn't like it, it was useless. But um, it was, no, sorry, I take that back. I'll come back to why I wasn't useless in a minute. But if you like that compression thing, then you could dial in different degrees of it, but it was always that. And there was something about that crudeness that attracted me um, to that pedal. Um, and, yet, though, and, this, and yet on your version, you did put a ratio control. No, the ratio control existed in the... Um, so this is the thing. The original orange squeezer had no external controls. It was just a box with a plug right. and it went onto your guitar actually as, you know, as inconvenient and ugly as could possibly have been imagined at the time. And <laughs> the, um, the inside of it had two trim pots. One was for its output level and one was for its ratio. And the idea would be you'd set the ratio and you set the output level so that it was, um, you know, essentially makeup gain, right? Um, and then you would close it and put the battery, you know, put the battery in, close it, and then and play, and you'd never touch it again. So what I did was I put that knob that for volume on the outside, and I put that trim pot for ratio on the outside, and then I did include another trim pot inside to further allow you to adjust the range of the external ratio knob um, to your liking. So you had the ability to kind of um, uh, coarse and fine tune ratio uh the coarse tuning would be interior and the fine tuning would be exterior and um and and it's called ratio but it is in fact ratio plus threshold plus 
um, you know, attack time, all those things were getting changed. Right. And uh, even and decay time too. Um, none of those things were fixed. They were all proportional and, uh, but, but ganged on that one knob. And so, um, yeah, I thought the orange street squeezer was kind of cool for that, um, for that lack of, um, parametric capability. It kept, for one thing, it was like less to worry about, um, while you're making music, you know, like if you have a five knob compressor, you can spend a 20 minutes getting, you know, it's just became absurd after a point. Right. Um, but also because there, and this is something I did not discover until I had been using one for a while. But if you turn the ratio all the way uh, down off, essentially, um, so that it is not compressing at all, um, that that circuit is a fantastic overdrive. Yeah. So especially under like a Fender amp, which ten, Fender amps tend to have this kind of spongy, rubbery, low end and a somewhat anemic kind of high end. And there was something about the way this overdrives them that um, kind of filled in the middle and it gave it a little bit of smolder and, and grit um, without, you know, it didn't lose its essential fendery character, but, but it gave it um, enough more balls to be like kind of cool sounding. Like, you know, it, it kind of reminded me of like, if you really crank a fender, like if you, if you can stand being within a hundred feet of a twin wide open, um, it's that sound, but without the hearing loss <laughs> and structural damage, you know, it's right. like, it, it would get, it would get it into that territory. No, um, you know what, yeah. because this is, uh, if you have a two channel fender amp, one of the greatest things to do is, you know, uh, daisy chain the, the two channels together, take, put your, guitar in a one or your bass in a one whatever the fuck the the, the amp you're using i use bassman you can use and then board. jump it and then yeah. you jump it and you stick them you know on a basement since it's the bass instrument channel and then the guitar channel you stick bass instrument uh turn all the treble off turn all the bass up and then you turn on the normal channel all the bass off and all the treble up and you have the boost with uh with you you when you turn the volumes up to ten, you can use your volume and tone as how much treble and how much bass you want. You you essentially can control the amp from your guitar if you do it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what I found is I could do the same thing, but on three, if I stuck a uh one of the Hartman compressors ahead of the amp after the guitar, ahead of the amp, nothing else, and you could do it on three. Same same kind of sound, a little bit more balls in the mid-range, which was helpful when I was using a Strat with a pair of humbuckers in it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it got there. Great thing for recording. Yeah, um, I've actually, I, I record direct a lot with guitar now, and um, it kind of took me a while to, to uh come around to that because i i kept you know i i've i reamp guitar tracks a lot um because i like i like the um the way a guitar track sits in a mix if it's been recorded by a microphone coming out of a speaker in air and there's something that no plug-in simulation has been able to do that i can get very easily by reamping the track but i do often record directly um and I will sometimes use the compressor into the preamp um, of my recording rig, you know, not into a guitar amp at all, but 
you know, right, right into uh, an API or something and overdrive the preamp a little bit that way. Um, and I can get a little bit of um, interaction as, as if it were, you know, a guitar amp that way, um, which I think, you know, it depends on what you're, what you're going for, but I, I think it kind of helps sometimes to keep a little bit of the, um, the, there's a little bit of an unpredictability and a surprise factor playing into a live, you know, a guitar amp. It's like you, and like you say, um, you know, it can inspire your playing when the amp is reacting to your playing in ways that you, you know, might not anticipate and it becomes part of what you're doing. And, um, I've, I found a little bit of that possible using the compressor, um, just going, you know, into a DI here in the studio. Um, I've tried it with other things and, and they, you know, I have yet to find anything for a fuzz pedal more satisfactory than a guitar amp. Like I, they really need a guitar amp, the fuzz pedals, the compressor can get away with a, you know, a studio amp impedance and, um, essentially uncolored, you know, amp after it, uh, that doesn't cut off at 6k. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? A, a fuzz pedal, not that a fuzz pedal is a sentient beating, but if essentially a fuzz pedal will know what it's being plugged into, um, in, in a way and, and it will react to what it is being plugged into. And it really, I mean, like you said, you, you can't really get much better than, than plugging it into an amplifier and letting it move air. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, the, you know, I think it's our, we're pattern detecting creatures. Our brains are so good at detecting, um, artificial patterns amidst natural ones and probably vice versa, probably vice versa. Actually, I think it's, that's probably the adaptive trait that we, and then, so the, the converse is that we can hear something that's, um, you know, artificial lurking, or, you know, it's like if, uh, uh this kind of goes back to what you were saying about, um, music being too on the grid, you know, if you, you hear something and it's too screwed down, um, or, you know, the, the current, uh, in my opinion, bane of, um, a lot of commercial music, which is that it's auto-tuned to within, you know, inch of its de- life. It's just that there's nothing wrong with, um, something being real and imperfect um, to our minds. You know, like we might not like how it sounds, but there's nothing, like it doesn't trip any wires. We don't, we don't go, what was that? Sure. But the sec- the second you start, um, you know, trying to make things uh, too tidy, it actually kind of like, to me, at least as a listener, it sets off alarm bells. Like, like why is this being hemmed in why isn't it just being allowed to all hang out like what am i missing why is you know what was the and it interrupts the listening experience and it starts to make me pay attention to the um you know the mix decisions or the uh, our arrangement choices or the sound you know like it sort of detracts a little bit and there's something about all those rough edges that when you leave them in there um it, it again you know you may or may not like what you're hearing you as you may choose as a listener to say this isn't my thing um but you don't you don't doubt its authenticity or you don't 
feel like maybe you're being um, tricked into hearing something that didn't really happen, I guess is the way I would describe the experience as a listener. Um, and so, you know, that the, um, I kind of like, I, I kind of like the, um, the, uh, the roughness and the unpredictability that comes with using stuff like, you know, fuzz, which is, you know, or, or an amp that's a little cranked that's bound to misbehave. Right. Um, let me just say though, that I have to, you know, and this is something that this is again, another hard one lesson, um, doing, uh, music these last three or four years pretty intensively again, is that a lot of what sounds accidental and casual and spontaneous and magical is in fact labored over in great detail for, you know, hours, months, days, weeks. And, you know, I, I read somewhere like the 52nd fade at the end of, uh, Gaucho, it took them four hours, you know, to, to mix. Like I I've done fade outs and spent a little bit of time on them, but that's a lot of time to spend on 50 seconds for a fade, you know? Um, right. So all that, I, I realize now that, you know, a lot of what sounded like, um, you, uh, you you have only to watch uh, live at Pompeii uh, studio outtakes from the recording of Dark Side of the Moon to observe how the solos on that album were constructed phrase by phrase. You know, they were comped literally three or four notes at a time. For free. Enjoying this conversation? I know I certainly am. Hey guys, D3 here. Unfortunately, I gotta cut off the interview right here, but fear not, there will be a part two next week, Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021, at 11 11 a.m. We will be releasing part two with Theo Hartman. As with last time when we had a two part episode, this episode will not have a gear talk or a music segment, but fear not, we will have one of each next week. And we will have the finished AKG Podcaster Essentials Pack demo and review finished in three weeks when we talk to Adam Thies. We're going to have Scott Wildman back on the program for Gear Talk, and he's going to give us some tips and tricks about Ableton Live, which Ableton Live Lite 10 comes with the AKG Podcaster Essentials Pack. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing out from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. 
we're ready to record. 